Okay, great. Thank you very much. So we're going to begin our, our Q&A. Um, we'll be asking questions of the presenter and the audience is able to ask questions as well. I just want to explain to everyone how that works. So we don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand if you're not sure how to do this. What you need to do is click on the reactions button on the bottom right of the Zoom window, then click on the raise hand function in the menu that pops up. We will then take questions in, or in the order in which they re were received. When it's your turn, we will unmute you and prompt you to state your name, where you are from and ask your question. We ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. We will then mute you. In order for everyone to get their, a, a chance to ask a question, we will be taking, we won't be taking any follow-up questions. However, if you would like to do a follow-up question, you can just go ahead and, and raise your hand again and get on the back of the line should, should we have time. So um, why do you think governments, countries, and individuals haven't done these types of things already? And how will we make that change? How will we get them to, to change their current behavior? Well, you know, uh, I'm of a view that the nation state, the one that we know and love, the one that has existed in the world since Napoleon, um, is actually coming to its use-by date. And nation states are no longer the things that they were. They're no longer the individual powers that they were. Why? Because money, the power of money, has migrated to the global level. Corporations are now bigger than most countries. They wield more power. They don't pay taxes. You know, so countries are actually the amount of money that governments have to spend on their people is, is declining. Uh, so their ability to influence their own future is actually declining. Um, and as a result, you know, the quality of politicians is going down everywhere. Um, it's going down for a number of reasons. One of them, as I mentioned, people are losing their intelligence, so they're not able to choose good politicians any longer. And we're getting a class of bottom feeders coming into politics now who are out for themselves they're not interested in the country any longer. Um, they're not interested in the good of humanity. Um, they're just out there to, to, dig, to dig the gold. So the quality of governance worldwide, and I'm not just referring to democracies here. I mean, most of the countries in the world are, are autocracies. Um, they're not democracies. So, but even in autocracies, you're getting exactly the same problems arising. Lower quality of governance. And so the nation really is, is a fading dream. Um, you know, I know this, this hurts people. They, they love their flag and their anthem and their, their patriotism and things like that. But that's yesterday's, yesterday's, you know, political circumstance. Things are changing very rapidly. Um, so governments are not addressing those things because they're still obsessed with the national need. So the reason that climate change hasn't been addressed is that governments are still thinking of themselves and they're still thinking of their political needs, not thinking of the human future. Uh, national governments do not think about the human future in any serious way. I mean, a few might, you know, government of Bhutan or Denmark or somewhere like that. But most governments are still thinking in a very selfish 19th century fashion. And they're competing with one another in a very selfish 19th century fashion. I mean, the, the, the kind of wars that are going on at the moment, Ukraine and things like that, or, or America and China chesting off against one another, these things are just so out of date. Um, you know, they're anachronisms. That, that was fine in the 19th century when, when a war didn't do any great lasting damage. 
Nowadays, it can wipe out humanity. So it's a very dangerous thing to have these nations still stomping around with nuclear weapons. We, we need to move on from that. We need to grow up, recognize we're one people on one planet, and we help ourselves to survive or we go down together. And how do we go about enlightening the, the politicians who basically have a, a vested interest in benefiting off of the status quo? How, how do we get them to change their motivations? Well, the trouble is that most governments are not uh, chosen by the people, even in democracies, they're chosen by corporations. Mm -hmm. So you know, American um, uh, climate policy is dictated by the oil companies, for example. American chemical policy is dictated by the chemical companies. It's not dictated by the people. Mm -hmm. um, the politicians are in the back pocket of the corporations. So the short answer is if you want to change that behavior, you have to change how the corporations behave. There is only one thing that changes how corporations behave, and that's how you spend your dollar. So if you buy you know, clean, organic food, you're sending a signal to the market not to use chemicals in food. Um, and, that, and that trend is growing very, very fast now. We can see it in the world. The, the demand for organic food is expanding out of sight. Uh, because As more and more consumers wake up to the poisons that they're ingesting and feeding to their kids, you know, they're going to the supermarket and demanding more organic food and the supermarket is getting the message or they lose money. Um, so it's only when the corporations start getting that message. It's only when people start buying electric vehicles instead of oil powered vehicles that the car companies get the message. We'd better start making electric vehicles. So really, you know, we can change the gravity of, of human corporate greed if we actually want to. Um, and if you change how corporations behave, you will, in this world where corporations predominate, change how governments behave as well. Unfortunately, as I say, governments don't listen to their electors very closely. They listen just enough to get themselves re-elected if they're democracies. Um, and they listen just enough uh, not, not, not to have an internal revolution if they're autocracies. And, and we must never forget that, you know, as I say, three quarters of the world's countries are autocracies. So, um, you know, we really have to change the economics uh, if we're going to change the politics. And how do we enlighten individuals to get involved? How do we get the word out? How do we um, get them engaged so that they are making the proper consumer choices that will then impact the corporations, which will then change how our governments function? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of good information coming forth now from, from well-meaning organisations. In America, you've got the Environmental Working Group, for example, that tells you which vegetables to buy and which ones not to buy because they've got chemical poisoning. There's lots of organisations telling you which lipstick or cosmetics to buy, which are toxic and which are not toxic, um, and so forth. So th this information is now starting to pour forth. And it's getting easier and easier. So that there are apps you can get on your smartphone. You can go into the supermarket and scan the barcode, and that will tell you how toxic that can of food is, as opposed to the next door can of food that says organic on the can. Um, so, so this information is starting to come forth as a result of consumer demand. But the other thing that's happening, um, and you know, I'm on Twitter and other social media, people are exchanging information about these things at light speed around the world. So the information of what a group of, of well-meaning mums in America is doing to, to stop poisoning their kids gets out onto the internet, spreads around the world. There are people copying it in Africa, in 
Asia, in, in South America, this information is moving like wildfire. So people are starting to have this global discussion of how do we make it a safer, healthier environment? And there's, there's dozens of groups, you know, um, the, the, the uh, Breast Cancer Association in America, for example, gives you very good advice about which chemicals to avoid if you want to avoid breast cancer. Uh, and that advice, of course, is on the internet, which means that it's accessible to everybody. And it's being shared by, you know, uh, female groups around the world. So <clears throat> this kind of stuff is getting out there now. You know, it's a slow process, but I believe that consumers are becoming much more informed uh, about the toxicity and the climate dangers involved in consuming certain products as opposed to other products. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I do think it's starting to happen. Um, you know, I, you just have to look at the renewable energy revolution and, and how quickly it's taken off just in the last five years. It's exploded and it's continuing to explode. And, and then say to yourself, what's the renewable food revolution going to look like? It's going to look even more exciting. You know, they will be growing food on the roof of the rest, your favourite restaurant. They will be growing food on the roof of the hospital when you've had an operation and you want to recover. They, they, you know, they will be growing renewable food, fresh, healthy food, and of much, a huge variety. I mean, there's 30,000 edible plants on this planet, and we currently eat 300 of them. Right, you know, we're eating one percent of the available good nutrition on this planet, which is just ridiculous for an industrial society. So once people start growing those things in your street, in your city, in your suburb, you know, the 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 world starts to look a much more encouraging place. And and we have preventative medicine. So instead of everybody catching cancer, which is the state of uh, play now and then trying to cure it with some very expensive poisonous chemicals, we, we, we put a lot more effort into the prevention of disease in, instead of the, the horrible medical model that we've got now, which is run by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, where they just want you to take a chemical that won't cure you, but it might make you live a bit longer so you can buy more chemicals. <clears throat> so, so really, I mean, that's a very cynical uh, approach to things. Why don't we just feed, feed people on fresh food that hasn't been contaminated, and and uh, you know avoid that problem? And I see a lot of your sponsors are, are doing exactly that, and that's that's what's going to happen. So, so a lot of the people speaking for the Real Truth About Health conference are in the plant-based community. I've been part of this community as well, and one of the things that is lamented is the challenge for getting people to eat plant-based. So, you know, just for their own health. So they have a vested interest in their own well-being. They have a vested interest in the health of their children and their loved ones. And that's not motivating them. How, how, do, you, how do you see people getting motivated by the, the larger picture? To, to people eat? get motivated by the same thing that's motivated them for 2,000 years or more, fashion, right? If, if more and more people are doing it, if it becomes fashionable to do it, to dress in 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 uh, you know chemical free clothing or something like that, uh, to 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 eat vegetable foods and uh, exotic vegetable foods, and as I pointed out, there's a huge array of exotic vegetable foods that people have never heard of. Um, you know that's what makes things catch on. People notice what other people are doing. They get told about it on the media. They become interested. Um, you know, I mean. Cooking these days is one of the world's great sports. You know, I mean, the, the, the media is jammed with cooking programs and recipes in magazines and things like that. The opportunity to put good nutrition information into that 
is is vast. And, and I'm finding, I'm, and I've been asked to address several um, chefs' conferences because chefs these days, they know how to produce beautiful food, but they don't know much about the nutrition side of things and the health side of things. But they're starting to inquire about that. And they're starting to inquire about the sustainability. So was it produced with toxic chemicals? How was it farmed? What did the farmer do about it? So that's one thing I would say. The other thing is a comment from my life as an agricultural journalist, which was over 50 years. And a lot of people are lecturing people on the need to become vegan and to, to, to get livestock foods out of the diet. I don't agree with that because worldwide over history, livestock and plants um, produce a very wonderful synergy that produces a good variety of foods and it recycles nutrients, right? The poo from the livestock fertilizes the fields and so on. The whole African economy was based on that until about till modern agriculture came in, you know. So, so um, you know, th these are very viable, sustainable, regenerative systems. You need livestock in that system. I, I don't believe in lecturing people to, that they have to eat this or they have to eat that. That puts them off. People don't like being told what to put in their mouths. That's why people don't like big corporations telling them that they have to eat things as well, because they suspect that the big corporations are motivated by money, and they're probably right. So, you know, they don't like being lectured to eat GM food by some big buddy cornflake company. Um, so, so, you know, people are questioning that, and they've every right to do so. But we need a mixed diet. We are mixed feeders. Look at our teeth. You know, we're, 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 we're not vegetarians like sheep. Uh, we haven't got sheep's teeth. We've got wolves' teeth or dogs' teeth or something. You know, we're, we're, we're used to eating mixed foods over millions of years. But you don't have to be cruel to livestock. You do not have to farm livestock on the Henry Ford model that was developed in the United States and elsewhere, uh, where you torture livestock in large, in large barns and things like that. Um, that's a disgraceful form of agriculture. Uh, livestock should, should be able to roam free and they should be part of the natural ecosystem of a regenerative farm. If people want to eat them, fine. If they don't want to eat them, fine. And um, what can individuals do um, to, to combat the various factors plaguing this planet? Is there stuff that they can do directly? Uh, obviously, like stopping nuclear weapons, very hard to do without government intervention, like going through those channels. But what are the things that individuals can specifically do directly as opposed to doing things to influence corporations, to influence the governments? Well, actually, there's a ton of things you can do to stop nuclear weapons as well. I mean, you know, the Doctors Against Nuclear Weapons, uh, all sorts of environmental groups and things like that uh, can, can give you a, a long list of things that you can do to try to dissuade your government from destroying the world. Um, so, so there is actually quite a lot we can do. It's a bit harder in an autocracy than it is in a democracy. Um, but really, we have to persuade them, first of all, to climb down from their current positions. But look, we got rid of, we've almost got rid of chemical weapons. It, there's been a remarkable, um, you know, destruction of chemical weapons in the last 10 years. Uh, so it's doable. It's perfectly doable. We can do it with nukes as well. We don't need 13,000 nuclear weapons to take out the human race five times over. Um, so so that, that that is doable. But what can we do? Look, there's a long, long list of things that we can do. But number one, at the top of the list, if you wanted to reduce your climate impact, have one less child. The biggest thing you can do is have one less child. 
or have no children and buy a poodle. Why? Because the poodle is never going to want to go to Harvard. It's never going to want to own a Ferrari. It's never going to have a, a carbon footprint like a child. So if we actually want to reduce our impact on the earth, our impact in chemical terms, in energy terms, and so on, let's get the human population back down to a sustainable level. And just for everyone's information, the scientific consensus is that a sustainable level is around about two, two and a half billion people. So that's about what the population was when I was born, okay, in 1950. Uh, that's a sustainable population at current standards of living. Okay, so it all depends on how much material consumption you have. But basically, you, the Earth can support 2 billion people indefinitely um, at, at modern levels of consumption, provided there's only 2 billion of us. Anything else means we are into overshoot. And overshoot means we are into potential catastrophe. And that's what you've got to bear in mind, that the alternative to not getting the population down is far worse than reducing the population. So you mentioned not wanting to tell people what to do. How do you get people to, if they're inclined to have their whatever number of kids, they want three and they want three, they don't want three minus one. How do you convince people to have three minus one or, or two minus one? Well, you know, women used to have eight babies each. <laughs> I mean, back in my grandparents' time, uh, eight to 12 was a pretty common family. Um, so they've already done that, haven't they? And they've done it voluntarily. Nobody told them to, to stop having 12 children and, and, and have only two children, but, but they have done it. Now, that has been done not by men, but by women. Women have made this decision autonomously. They have decided it's much better to raise two children healthily and educate them well so that they in turn can go on and have children uh, than it is to have 12 children and have half of them die from preventable disease or something. So, you know, basically, if you want to perpetuate your family, your genes and things like that, have two children and raise them well, and you will have much more, you know, ancestry <laughs> or so progeny um, down, down, down the line than if you have 12 children and a lot of them die unpleasantly. Um, so, you know, we just need to rethink. We're, we're not cave people any longer. We're not living in the medieval world when children are, are farm labor um, and stuff like that. We don't need that stuff. Ask the Chinese girls, ask the Japanese girls. In fact, ask the girls of any of the Asian countries what they're doing. And they're telling you that I'm not getting married. <laughs> I'm not having kids or I'm having very few kids. Uh, they're with it and nobody forced them to do it. It's a decision they came to autonomously. So women are leading the world out of the most dangerous period of its history when the population has expand, expanded way beyond what the earth can carry in the long run. And, and so women are doing this without asking, without consulting the blokes. Right? And, and you look at the people who are lecturing you on population. They're all male, you know, they're politicians, they're journalists, they're priests, you know, they're, they're all fuddy-duddy old men in, in, in grey cardigans, you know, and, and they really, you know, they know nothing about it. They're, they're obeying the instincts of a thousand years ago. They're completely out of touch with the modern world. If we want humans to survive, and I presume we do, um, you know, let's have less of them and have them survive better.
So you, you, thank you. You, you discussed, uh, uh, you talked about a creative economy. What would a job look like in a creative economy? A job uh, might look like uh, your job now. I mean, you know, it, it, it might look like my job. It, it's an arts economy. It's a sports economy. It's a caring for people economy. You know, we're going to need a lot of carers. I, I mean, one in four humans is brain damaged now. It's, it's shocking, you know, um, the amount of chemicals that are coming into our brain is causing all this depression, ADHD, autism, things like that. And so all that, a lot of those people are going to require full-time care um, as, as we go down, or at least part-time care. So a lot of people can be, so instead of manufacturing things, I mean, think about, think about basic labouring tasks. You go back 50 or 100 years, you know, people were digging holes in the road with picks and shovels. Then we replaced them with large machines. Then we replaced those large machines with robots. You know, so, so a lot of the manual tasks of labor of yesteryear are now being done by machines. AI is going to replace doctors, lawyers, journalists, you name it, uh, in the next 10 years. It's going to be quite shocking. Um, when you consult the doctor, you'll be consulting a computer. Um, but basically, uh, Things are going to change pretty pretty rapidly in that space. So the creative economy is one where humans are free to use their minds. Our mind is the best thing, is the best part of us. So we'll be entertainers, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be artists, we'll be scientists, researchers, we'll be tourist guides, you name it, you know, but we will not be digging things up and making things because robots will have taken care of all of that. And we don't need to dig things up any longer, as I mentioned. We can just recycle the old stuff. And we can recycle our entire cities these days. Cities, you can grind up all the bricks and the glass and the old concrete and turn it back into new things. Um, so, you know, it can be done. And a lot of people will be involved in that recycling. And I mentioned renewable food. Well, what a wonderful industry. I mean, 30,000 plants, that's 30,000 new agricultural industries, if you like that can take place right in your city, growing plants hydroponically. So uh, these are very creative jobs mm -hmm. uh, and inspiring jobs. And they're not dirty jobs. You know, they're, they're, they're not miserable, they're not kind of jobs that you put your migrant labor into and things like that, uh, because you'll get robots will do all the dirty work. Um, so, so really, you know, the opportunities for a good life, a healthy life, a caring life and a thought-filled life are going to be much bigger uh, in the future than they are now. You talked about deep ocean agriculture. What is that? Okay, well, well, uh, basically that's the farming of seaweeds, as we call them, sea crops, I prefer to call them, on enormous racks in the deep ocean. And what you're doing is you've, you've got a, a pipe going down you know, 500 feet, and that's pulling water up from 500 feet of the water, deep down in the ocean is much more filled with nutrients. These are nutrients that are washed off the land over millennia. So all the soil that we've lost, all the, uh, you know, all, all the sewage that's been dumped in the rivers and has flowed down to the sea, all of that's gone to the bottom of the ocean. And the oceans are chock-a-block with nutrients. And so you can actually irrigate your seaweeds with nutrients from the deep ocean. You can farm the seaweed on immense racks. You can have very large nets. Um, containing fish that are that are ranched extensively rather than intensively so they're not being showered with chemicals the way that salmon and things like that are farmed today 
So you're not creating chemical pollution. You're not creating nutrient pollution. These things are stormproof. They test them up in you know, hurricane uh, conditions and things like that. They float just under the surface of the sea and, and you use the, the sunlight to, to create. So that's going to, seaweed's terribly useful stuff. It makes good food. It makes good livestock feed. It makes, you can make a t-shirt out of seaweed if you want to. You can make enormous array of products out of seaweed. It, it, you know, your shaving cream, wine, beer, you know, cheese, all of these things contain, contain things from seaweed. Um, so seaweed's a terribly useful crop, but you can also use the seaweed to feed fish. And so you can farm uh, large scale fish instead of plundering the oceans with trawlers the way we're doing it and destroying the ecosystem. You just grow very big nets, you know, full of anchovies or, or whatever it is you want to farm. So, you know, deep ocean aquaculture is a coming thing. It's uh, the technologies are there now. Um, but the uh, the large scale, the upscaling of the development is is still ahead of us. But, you know, hell, you know, agriculture has come from nowhere in the last 7,000 years, mm-hmm. farming the land. Why should we not farm the oceans? And the nice thing about farming the oceans, if you're farming the deep oceans, you're not displacing anything else. If you farm the land, you're displacing the Amazon rainforest. You're, farm, you're, you're, you're cutting, you're clear felling Southeast Asia. You know, if you farm the land, you're, you're, you're ploughing an awful lot of trees and species under and, and terribly destructive practice. So, but if you farm the deep oceans, maybe the marlin have to move five miles to the right, you know, but the, there's, there's not going to be a big displacement. And, and, and the other thing about an ocean farm is it's in three dimensions. So one kilometre of ocean, you know, can, can produce 10 times the food of one square kilometre of land, of crop or, or livestock. So, so it's a much more efficient way to farm. You can produce vastly more food from a much, much smaller area because you're farming in three dimensions. You're farming into the depth of the sea, maybe a, a couple of hundred feet. So, uh, you know, it's, it's got many things to recommend it. And of course, you know, no doubt all the doctors at this conference are telling people, you know, you've got to have more of those omega-3s and 6s and things like that. You've got to have more of that in your diet. Well, where does that come from? It comes from seaweed, algae, mm. which the fish eat, and they accumulate omegas. And then we eat the fish to, you know, not get a heart attack. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful health giving activity. So, you know, if you want to ask me where to put your money, you know, for really powerful industrial investment in the future, deep sea aquaculture every time it's a, it's got huge potential. It's, it's going to be one of the great growth industries of the next 30 years. Thank you. So you talk about a universal agreement um, that all nations and all people would sign. How do you get people to sign this? It just seems like to get even a tiny percentage of, of people to do anything is is a huge, uh, you know, requires a, a, a huge Herculean effort. How do you get everyone in the world to sign, uh, to even know about this agreement? Well, and well, agree- if we had such an agreement, it would be much talked about on the media uh, and, and governments would be talking about it because they would be asked to, to sign and ratify it. But, you know, um, if I asked you to sign a document saying I pledge myself to work for a habitable earth for my grandchildren, would you sign it or not? 
is it, I, I don't know, I'd have to read, I'd have to read the agreement and understand actually what it, what it compelled me to do. Does it compel anybody to do it? Or poisoning, you know, no, no more disrupted climate, you know, that, that's what it would say. So all of, the, all of the 10 threats would be embodied in the agreement. But look, I, I reckon an awful lot of people would sign it just because they love their grandkids and they, they love the idea of an earth that is being restored to a beautiful natural condition beyond the, the the hell that we're making of it. And and I, I look, I, I don't think you'd have to force people to sign this at all. I think that, you know, the, the, the swim of human history would do it for you. People are very dissatisfied with the performance of their governments now. Look at these poor kids being jailed in Britain for protesting over the climate and, and, and other things at the moment. And that's where we're at at the moment, where these fascist governments are, are locking up our children because they want a future because they want to be able to live on the planet. For heaven's sake, how mad are they? You know, and, and, well, and, and I agree with that. So how do we get those, what you call fascist governments to sign? And then, uh, and I, I won't, you know, I won't presume that you're familiar with with uh, American politics, but oh. here, you know, you know, environmentalism is a dirty word with half the country. So, you know, they think that it's a, you know, people think that it's a conspiracy to you know to take away their rights to take away their cars and whatever how do you how do you get the information to them in a way to to those people who don't necessarily agree with you who aren't going to just sign off right now how do you get them to or how do you pass information on to them so that they don't see it as an assault on their freedom that they don't see it as an assault on their rights and that they would be inclined to support such an agreement well the way we share information in our society and in America especially is via media and social media principally but also around the family meal table and and in other places so a, a lot of this is happening voluntarily look in America frightened corporations have have taught Americans that it's bad for for profit and it's bad for your shareholder dividends you know if you protect the environment or if you stop polluting the atmosphere or if you stop killing people with chemicals it's bad for the environment uh, and and that kind of philosophy has has engrafted itself on on american politics but there are many many highly intelligent americans and i presume a lot of them are listening to your conference right now who who know that this is not the way to go and you know and and boy do their kids know the kids of the world are getting a really bad deal here. They're being handed a planet in its death throes in terms of its habitability, and they're not going to be happy about that. And they're going to change governments, even if we don't, right? So politics will be forced to change. Politics never likes changing. It, it, it always wants 51% of the people to get over, fall over the electoral line. You know, it doesn't really care about the future. It doesn't give a stuff about the future. It's only about the next election. Uh, so that's why politics and nations are yesterday, and 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 they're gradually going to fade out of the picture. Um, but you know we're we're moving to a different world now, where where the people through this worldwide communication, through this single mind that we're forming on the planet, are going to share these ideas at the speed of light and start thinking together about what the hell have we got to do to survive in this place and to make it beautiful again. Um, and, and so, yeah, we will overcome the conservatism that people who don't want to change. Conservatism is a very valid point of view. Why? Because, I mean, if you, conservatism is what you trust, 
okay you, you, your your experience your life experience tells you to trust this system and you don't want to change too quickly um because change often brings not only discomfort but sometimes bad things so you know that's why conservatism is it's a natural human instinct and you know but it has to evolve as the planet itself is changing the the, the point about climate change is it's the physics of the atmosphere that's doing this and there's not a damn thing that politics or money can do about it you know physics is going to dictate the future of the earth physics biology and chemistry are going to dictate what happens to human beings whether we like it or not now we better get with the bloody program uh, or, or it's going to become very pleasant unpleasant and I, I consider that there probably will be some catastrophic events over the next 30 40 years and these will be the wake-up call that will inspire people to action i think the young people are already getting motivated as we've seen in britain they're prepared to go to jail over it they're prepared to go to jail in australia to stop the coal mines and things like that so yes it's happening that the new generation is is going to reject uh, those old precepts that you described um and that's going to dominate the, the political agenda in, in, in many countries, including China, India, Russia, you name it. Young people are going to change the way that things are done. So, you know, it may not be happening fast enough. That's the only problem. 